Hello, Logic friends. This is Glenn Teal, the host of episode 33. Today, I'm talking with Mark LaRue. Mark is a Boston-based flame artist. I had the pleasure of working with him at Brickyard VFX a few years ago. He's a really well-rounded flame artist who doesn't shy away from using the best tool for the job, which can lead him to using After Effects, Nuke, Maya, and multiple other pieces of software. I had a great time catching up with Mark. Hope you enjoy the episode. Now, a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Logic Podcast is brought to you by AJA, together with Flame since 2006. We would like to welcome to the Logic family our friends at Hotspring. Hotspring is the future of VFX outsourcing. Hotspring connects you to great artists to get your projects done, making it easier than ever to access the best talent around the world. I highly encourage, if you need any help with roto, paint, cleanup, or 3D match move, Give the folks at Hot Spring a shout. You will not be disappointed. www.thehotspring.com. No, for sure. Yeah, dude, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm glad to be here. And dude, it looks like you're in your new office. Yeah, finally. A long time coming. I could get some artwork on the walls. That's for sure. Just don't do this clutter that I have behind me, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, if I, if I turn, if I turn, then, then it all starts, you'll see it just starts piling up. So it, it's all there. It's just being, it's just hidden. Nice, man. Yeah. Nice. All right. So, well, okay, dude, we start this off with a few flame specific questions. Desktop, are you horizontal or vertical? Uh, horizontal all the way. Okay. I did. I, I, well, I did start out though. I did start out vertical, and it like it kind of broke my brain. I just I, I understood where it was coming from from like the old school like actual film bit like film bin and stuff like that. But I, I non-linear editor timing things start at zero on the left, and they go into infinity towards the right, and that's it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. I'm right there with you, man. I'm right there. Okay. So flame or smoke hotkeys. I use the flame hotkeys because that's what I learned on and that's all I go by. Yeah. I feel like there's less clicks too, or like I've never actually used smoke ever. So it, it wouldn't it like it would do me no good. Like when I started out, it was we were on Flame 2013. Yeah, pre-anniversary. Yeah, yeah. So we didn't even have smoke and because we didn't need it. And so well, yeah, basically always been flame. Okay. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I flame is a base and then I modify some keys. That's, that's yeah, I, I, have a few, I have a few that I kind of have switched around. But honestly, I kind of like to keep it as close to native as possible, just jumping around from box to box because the like keys don't go along and you have to make your new user. And it's like all that stuff. I just want it to always be like the way it is at default. That's the smartest way to go about it. For sure. Yeah. yeah, I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole of customizing too many keys. So if I started it at a new shop, it takes about 30 minutes to update everything. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, it's just like, yeah, I never have, I've never had to worry about that because it's like, no matter what flame I go to or, yeah, you're good. You know, what place I'm at, it's like, as long as it's the default, then I'm, I'm pretty good. And I've, it's never, I've never been like, man, I wish this could be faster. I'm sure there's some things that like I could map to make it better, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it's all muscle memory anyway. So it's like what you just, you know, once you know yeah. it, you know. It. Oh, no, I know. I know for sure. Okay. So when it comes to the Wacom, do you use the tablet in front of the keyboard or to the side? Always been in front. Yeah, me too. Yep. Me too. Always. Yep. I, I have some, I have seen some videos. This was, a, this was maybe in like 2000 and seven or around there. I had I before I was even on on a flame, I had seen some tutorials and it might have been from a smoke, but anyways, yeah, they had them 
the 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 user had him to the side and then I was like, oh, they were talking about why they liked it. And then I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, that makes sense. And then once I started using it, it just, it made more sense to me to have it there in front. Out of, you yeah. know, it just, yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it's interesting. More people I've been talking to recently use it on the side. Really? And they say it's actually helped their posture. You so don't I like hunch over as much. Right. And I was just going to say that, like, I would think if anything, it would make me, if my tablet was to the like to the right because I'm right-handed, yeah, I guess I would almost have to turn the keyboard to the left. Like I'd feel like my neck would be off. You know oh, what I right, mean? Right. Like, turn, like <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I've, I've never tried it, so maybe I should. Maybe I should like switch it up in 2023. You okay, know, 2023. Like, that's that's the goal, Mark. Go, I'm like, holding you to go, this. Like, <laughs> smoke hotkeys. Tablet to the side, you know, just completely start <laughs> yeah, over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> only, only use desktop tools. Don't use batch. You oh, know? old school. Yeah. Just oh, yeah. all old school. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Just pretend, yep. you know, the anniversary edition never happened. Never happened. Keep, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Man. Yep. Last flame specific question. When you're in batch, are you single view or dual view? Great question. I started out and I remember like, I was all about the views, like, you know, two pain, three pain, four pain. What, you know, oh, I was like, you oh, didn't touch so four cool. pain. I think you might be the first flame artist I've ever heard that's touched because four pain. I, yeah, because I had done before flame so much time I had spent in Maya that I was used to looking at all the orthographic views. And so it'd be like, oh, you know, all this, this was all cool. And now I'm basic one up view 99% of the time. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I'll, I'll switch between the view and what I'm working on. And I just go back. I, I like, you know, it's just like, or I just set context down. So then basically I'm working in the node, but looking at my view. I, I run flame exactly the same way you do. And even though there right. are more button clicks with that, I find it to be faster than having the two up. I like to be able to see the, the thing that's always been awesome to me about flame is that you don't have the real estate's always been about the image and not about the menus. And uh -huh. I feel like sure. I always want to see the image and not have to see split view. You know, it keeps shrinking. It just makes the image shrink down more and more, or you're like truncated yeah. to what you're, what you're seeing. And I just like to be able to see as much as I can like yeah. on the canvas. No. And I think you're right. You bring up a really good point. And I think that is the power of flame. Your tools are always in one spot, right? So you right. always know where where you have to, you know, what buttons to click because it's always at the bottom. And then you focus on the image in front of you. Right. Like, And I feel like other systems, say even Nuke, I mean, Nuke, you could customize it a lot, but Nuke, Resolve, you're always clicking in a different spot for things. Yeah, you're right? clicking Whereas in a Flame different... is very, like, you have that very specific thing to click at all times. Yeah, and, like, obviously now they've introduced some more, like, search functionality whether it's matchbox or whatever in batch if you want to call stuff up and oh true up. which i do i still haven't used at all so like i'll use it occasionally but like it brings up a pop-up right or whatever yeah instead of like if, instead of you know you load a matchbox it brings up a whole window menu this is just allows you to bring up a pop-up but i really like the node bin because i don't like stuff going over my image you know like you said new yep. There's all these things like that come up over the image that take mm -hmm. your mind away from something, especially even when it's like rendering that you will see 
and I'll see a lot of mistakes that I make when it's rendering and I'll cancel the render. So basically like I've if something's covering up the image, then I won't know what I'm really getting until I check my render and I would rather see it almost as it's happening. It's like, it, it gives me my, it gives my brain some time to think and just look at the result, but go frame by frame at like, at, you know, whatever the speed of the setup is. So I kind of really, I don't like stuff coming up over the image, except for the image itself. I've kind of just gotten into that habit. Whereas, like I said, like at the beginning of the question, it's like, I was like all enthralled by like all the different views. And now I really try to stay away. Like I just, I'm like one up pretty much 99% of the time. And unless I'm doing something with a 3d camera and I need to see things in space, like top down in action, then I might go to a two up view or whatever. And then I'll just kind of cycle that one view to different views in there. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. All right. So I, you know, we go back a few years, you know, we met at Brickyard in Boston, I think it was 2018. Yeah. I, I want to know more. And I've, I've heard a few of your stories, but I want to know more about how you got into post-production. Yeah. What's the backstory of you getting into post? Yeah. So when I was in high school, basically I, all my friends, everything was like, you know, kids were like, oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? And it was like, oh, you know, there was a certain subset of students that were, they wanted to be doctors or, you know, policemen, firemen. And it seemed like all my friends were like, oh, well, I'm going to go to school for engineering. And, you know, to be honest with you, I was never that great at math. And and I, I just never really, it never was really something like, oh, I really want to do that. And, but I always had a, you know, a love for art. And then it was actually when my parents first got a computer and I, we had gotten like a hand-me-down from another friend. And basically I broke the computer like, a hundred times in a row <laughs> running America online and like the whole, you know, it was some 486 to Windows 3.1 box. And yes, during that time, I really started to like fixing the computer and working on a computer. So basically, it was actually right around when Titanic came out. And oh, cool. Which is funny because, you know, James Cameron is coming out with Avatar 2 now, but like, but basically that. Regardless of the story, it was about that I was like the whole thing about the ship and the like result of the image on screen. And basically, I just got this like really hankering to like figure out how they did it. And then I realized, oh, wait, so you can go to school for, you know, to art school and then get like focus yourself and then work on computers and make art and make films and make all this stuff. And so I was like, once that happened, I was like, that's what I want to do. And that was, I was a sophomore. So that would have been 97. Was that 97? Okay, 97. For me, it was 97, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, right around 97. And then, or so it it maybe might have been 98. I'll I'll want to see when the movie came out. No, I think you're right. No, I think you're totally right. I think Titanic was 97. So then... So yeah, so then from that point on, the rest of like my time in high school, I was like, well, I already know what I want to do. And I, so all, like, my, I just steered all my classes towards as many classes I could towards art classes. And then, yeah, so then I went, ended up starting out at Savannah College of Art and Design after a high school. And okay. I was only there for a quarter. They're on a quarter system, not semesters. And I ended up transferring. So I'm from Rhode Island and I ended up transferring to the Rhode Island School of Design. That's right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I was, I finished my undergraduate in 2004 and basically. Before we go into that, like, why did you transfer? Oh yeah. So basically like 
I had, since I had spent so much time for the remainder of my time in high school, like studying art, what happened is when they had it at the time, they didn't have a visual effects department. They had what was like a computer art major. And oh, okay. there were parts of that were like that they had 3D animation. Everything was on SGIs at the time. So, you know, you, they didn't, like Maya wasn't even around for regular PCs. So everything was on some kind of Unix-based system or whatever. But regardless of that, those first, like that first year was all traditional art classes that you would take. And I just felt like I was so far ahead of the other classmates in those classes that I just was like, I'm not really getting anything out of school Gotcha. because the professors were like more focused on those students who didn't have strong skills in that set in that area. So I was like, yeah, I was just kind of like, I think I made the wrong decision first time away from home. Maybe some of it was being homesick, but yeah, but basically ended up so, and I think at the time too, I didn't apply to RISD because I didn't think I would get in. And then I real there or so then I did apply after my first quarter. And so I, I ended up getting accepted, which I still think I, at the time I what that, that wasn't going to happen. And I did. So then it was kind of like a, Oh shit moment. Yeah. Like I should go to RISD. And so then that's when I, that's when I ended up transferring over. Oh, okay. Cool. So that was in two. Yeah. I started college in 1999. So that would have been the fall down at SCAD in Savannah. And then I, in January, transferred to RISD. Okay. And so I was in their film animation video department. Yeah. So basically, once I kind of got there, I, you know, took a lot of different classes. Mostly at the time I was doing like, After Effects was very new, but I was learning Maya and Mm -hmm. traditional animation. We did a lot on Steenbeck. So like we started like film editing, shooting 16 millimeter Bolex film and then editing on Steenbecks. And so everything was very like basic, but you learned a skill that was like, you don't have undos and you know, you don't have control Z you like you're making a cut and that's a cut, you know, like, right. Obviously my studies moved forward and I kind of really got into 3D animation he- was heavily, you know, had done a lot of classes in Maya. One of my professors had gotten me a job. So like I was always working and doing internships while I was in school. Wow. That's awesome. What what kind of companies were you interning yeah, at? So or, like, work- one of my first internships was at Hasbro Toys in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. That's where their world headquarters is. Okay. And I was in a really cool department there called the Fantasy Factory. And basically they had this like group of people who didn't really have a agenda for what they had to do every day. They just had to come up with cool shit. Wow. So, it was like, like, it was like an R and D department almost. Yeah, right? pretty much. Okay. And so like I would get these different assignments or work with different people on various things and then kind of run with stuff, but there was really no deadline. It was just like do good work and yeah. you would be mentored. And then I ended up actually taking a year off after my junior year, I was a bit burnt out and kind of had lost some focus. But one of my college professors of the name Dennis Holinsky, he had been doing some work for this company down in Newport, Rhode Island, but it was mainly for their, what they had made as a sellable product was this, you think of like lottery game machines, you know, like Powerballs and like yeah, oh, yeah, apparatus. Yeah. But so they had come up with a way to 
basically make a digital version of say like a Powerball. So like the Minnesota state lottery had commissioned the company to sell them the hardware as like a box, like sort of like a flame almost, right? Like okay. buy the specialized turnkey. hardware. And yeah. then a turnkey system, I was working on making graphics for it. So I think the Minnesota state lottery, the logo is like this cabin in the woods and there's okay. like nice. <laughs> Canadian geese, you know, in a lake and all this stuff. And so they wanted to like, the plan was to, so we would made it all in 3D and we had different cycles of stuff that would happen. So we had like the four seasons. So like spring, summer, oh, winter, yeah. fall. Then there were different elements that basically they would be able to turn on the fly, like as elements. So like they basically, we, had, we built them in this library that oh, the camera cool. move and the scene always stayed the same, yet everything else around it changed. So they could turn on different stuff if they wanted ducks in the water, if they wanted geese flying, if they wanted. What a unique product to make. I mean, I would have yeah, never it was really, thought that. It was really weird. <laughs> and it was like, it was totally bonkers. Like it was, it was like, <laughs> right. It, it was just an odd thing to get into. And so anyway, so yeah, that was, I did that for a year and made some money, which was kind of cool at the time. Cause you know, yeah, most no, of my friends great. weren't doing that or making money or having a job with like a career, kind of like part of your career. Yeah. It's and, like better than working uh, at like a, a restaurant or something. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So then, so then I, I, I said, okay, I, I got to finish, finish school. So I went back, graduated in 2004 okay. and then started actually working after school. Like after I graduated, I picked up a, a project contract job back at Hasbro. And then that lasted for about six months. And then I got my first real job as like a, you know, actual career salaried position at in the creative services department at WGBH in Boston, which is nice. they're the largest content provider for PBS as a whole system. Yeah. So the, the group that I was in, in the creative services department, they were basically, they were in charge or one of the big things that they were in charge of was or it still is to produce content for the on-air breaks. So basically like channel IDs, promos okay. for shows, sizzle reels, all sorts of different length of programming, but all with, you know, so you would think of at the time we would do 60 second spots, 30 second spots, 15s really weren't, there were a couple 15s that we would do, but that was almost rare. A lot, most of it was probably thirties. Okay. And I would, work alongside other editors. Everything was done on Avid at the time, but I was, so I, I had ramped up on Avid on the Was job this Avid then, DS? No, I hadn't gotten to the DS yet. We were on, we were on Avid Media Composer and we had like one, one Avid Symphony. And oh, so God, that was yeah, like, I remember, that was like, I remember that, that was like their online, basically like the DS was like, was something that we didn't come in contact for a few years. And basically so I was like cutting promos, writing voiceover, doing graphics for broadcasts, all sorts of elements that were, whether it was going to PBS or going directly to local broadcasts or our own broadcast here outside the Boston, inside and outside the Boston market. And so it was really cool to be like literally finishing something, running with the tape, you know, digi beta down to master control getting it you know doing the scheduling for the spots and then getting it on air and it would be on air and so it was like you could i could turn on the tv at any time and be like oh, like it was just like that was like kind of the ultimate in the sense of like you know it was almost like i 
it's like handing someone a check, but like the check immediately turns into cash in their hands, you know? And it's like, <laughs> and it's just like all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's my, like, that's my painting on the wall and it's done, yeah. you know, and, and people are consuming it. I was there for about seven years doing that. And during that wow. time, yeah, we ended up getting an avid DS, which is, which was at the time there, like full Flame, blown. Almost. Almost like a flame compositing system, except that it it had all like the things that were unique to the Avid, weirdly, and After Effects. So it had like oh, so was it, it layer based? I thought it was node based. So it had both. It had layer based, like a ton of layer effects, sort of like you think okay. of as like yeah. track effects or gap effects, yeah, or timeline effects and flame. But it had like layers that treated each layer like a layer, and then there were blending modes within those layers. Plus you could go into a composite environment and comp. Okay. Um, and then that would filter back through. So it was almost like one of those comp layers was the batch environment, but not as cool as batches or like yeah. how flame is. So but it didn't, ha it didn't have like, it didn't have like a 3D tracker. It didn't have like, but it had like everything else. Like, so basically like you never had to leave. Whereas like Media Composer, you would have to leave to go to After Effects a lot. Oh yeah, all the time. And they had something called Automatic Duck, which would allow you to export out sequence duck. Yeah. to After Effects and back. So basically the DS was awesome and it was a su it was super fast at rendering. I don't know what it, how it yeah, did you, under I, the I remember you telling me that you were like DS was like one of the fastest systems it was I ever super worked on. Fast. Yeah, it was nuts. And yeah, so I was on that for about a year at GBH. So that was getting around 2011. And then I ended up taking a job offer at the local affiliate of Fox here at WFXT, Channel 25 in Boston. And that was on an added DS. So I basically became their DS artist there. Nice. Okay. And yeah, so at the time it was like, I kind of needed a career change or just not a career change, but I just needed like a, a different opportunity. And so I left and started at Fox and I was only there for a year. Actually, what had happened is I basically being at GBH, I got to do a wear a lot of different hats. I, I was doing 3D, I was doing 2D, I was mm -hmm. writing voiceovers, I was cutting spots, doing actually a lot of sound mixing also in the Avid, which is like, Damn. that's okay. one of the things that's amazing about the Avid is you can do a really good sound mix right in its native tools. Yeah, And then sometimes yeah. that would go to Pro Tools. We, we had a guy, this guy, Paul Sani, who's amazing at Pro Tools and Avid. So sometimes he would do an online mix for me. And so, yeah, so like I got to wear a lot of different hats. And then when I was at Fox, it was like very, became very formulaic, you know, mm -hmm. during sweeps time there, which is like when they are trying to get their ratings and everything like that. It was just like pumping out like, you know, it was fun. The thing that I would say that I took from Fox was learning to deal with a producer basically right next to you for your entire shift. So like, wow, I got really comfortable having someone be like, all right, we got to do this. We got to do that. You know, very much like a, you know, a producer can be even on the visual effects side of things or like, as you know, Glenn, like you're in yeah. session with clients and, you know, there's a lot of stress that can go along with that, but you sort of find your groove, you get comfortable and you just, you run with it. And so I had kind of gotten that taste early on. 
but I really wanted to pursue more on the visual effects side. And so I ended up actually applying to graduate school at four different schools. And I ended up actually back down at SCAD in 2012. I ended up getting a full tuition scholarship. So this is for my master's degree. So it was kind of a no brainer. Like I'm like, okay, like it's all coming full circle. Yeah. I'm, I'm going back down to Georgia yep. and yeah. So I was like, and I'm going to study visual effects. So I'm going to like basically do a lateral move career wise, like get out of broadcast and go to like post Okay, and just do post. And yeah, so that was going to be a two to three year program would have been about closer to three years for my MFA, two years from my MA. And so, yeah, we were, I was back doing 3D stuff, started to learn Nuke. You started on Nuke first. Yeah, actually, yeah, wow. before. Dude, I, I never knew yeah. that. So, right. So, like, so went into, so started learning Nuke. So, did a full year. Mm-hmm. And then, like, summertime came and I was, my options were to, I could have taken a class for the summer, like, things really kind of shut down there. So I could have taken a, a class during the summer or I could have done an internship and that would have counted as like also course credit. So I was like, well, I'll do an internship. Mm-hmm. I was looking back around sort of like what was in New England at the time, just because like it made sense. Like I didn't really have any money. And I was like, yeah. oh, well, if I can like crash on a friend's couch. And that ended up bringing me to Brickyard Visual Effects. And oh, damn, okay. So how, how did you make that connection? I had heard of Brickyard because of working at GBH, we would mm, get mm-hmm. in external spots that I would have to digitize and then prep for master control to go on air. So I would see the tapes and also working at Hasbro, like we would get in tapes from all these different vendors, like real effects, cafe effects, like all these places, oh, yeah. you know, that were like producing stuff and at the, you know, the, the digi beta tape, you know, was, was the deal. Like, you know, it was like, that was your calling card. And so you, I would see all these different names and, and yeah, then you I see just, the slates. Yeah. See the slates, see the names. And I remember I was like, Oh, what's that place in Boston? And I, you know, quickly, you know, through the internet and everything like that, whatever quickly found it and reached out. And yeah, so they, I, I lied. I actually had said that I was like, I'm going to be in town to see family, which wasn't true. <laughs> Amazing. And I said, I'd love, I'd love to come by and see the studio. They said, okay, great. And I, I said, yeah, so the, this is the day I'll be in town. And I ended up just booking a flight. Dude, that's amazing. Yeah. So I just ended up booking a flight and, and ended up showing up. And and did you reach yeah, out to I, the EP at the time? Like, who did you reach out to at Brickyard? I reached out to Mallory Bazinet, who was basically mm-hmm. the the front desk at the time and just was kind of like was super cool and was just like yeah like come on in like we'd love to have you by and you know i walked in there and met with dave waller the at the time the owner and still the owner and by by the end of that day he was like you're on board and he's like what okay so okay go go into a little bit of the backstory so you show up for like a tour and then essentially you you had like a job offer well no i didn't have a job offer what i had was we had an agreement basically that since I was like still in school, it was like, basically like, why don't like we have you come in, you know, why don't you start work? And if you're on a job, I'll pay you. And if you're just kind of like learning or whatever, like that oh. will be like course credit. And oh, dude, that's cool. Wow. 
And then, and then he said that they had someone who had just recently, I guess within that past month, that was a compositor had just left. So he's like, you know, I think that you might be a good fit for this, you know, this person's position. So yeah, so I did that for the summer. And then after the summer, basically, then he offered me a job. Oh, nice. Okay. I said, let me think about it. So I, I, you know, thought about it for 24 hours or something. And just because I hadn't, I wasn't done with school yet and kind of wanted to make a decision. And then I just said, you know what, like, this is what I'm going to school for anyways. I might as well just take the job. Like, this is my opportunity. I'm going to learn more on the job than I am in school. Yeah, for sure. And the only thing that like, and I always knew too, that I was like, the classes I had I've finished will never go away. Like those course credits won't go away. Yeah. So basically it was like, well, if I say like, I hate the job or something like that, then I can always just go back to school. Yeah. So it was just like, I was like, I might as well take the job. Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, so that was in 2013, like August of 2013. So I, I said, all right, I just need a week. I need to move. I need to go to back to Georgia and move myself back for the second time. And, And, and then I, yeah, then I started a week later and basically was jumping into flame at that time. I'd already kind of started, but really jumping into flame head, head first. And I was also doing a lot of 3D as well. So a lot of Maya, a Maya too, and tracking. We were using Buju at the time. So I had already done a bunch of that in my past. And so basically it was kind of like filling in where they needed help or whatever, or, and then it was like, and then that turned into more like more and more flame, more and more, you know, getting put more and more onto either jobs of other artists or running jobs in the flame suites. They ha- they also had, they pretty much had a flare for every flame too. So like a lot of times, I would be on a flare in the flame seat with the clients also, but just kind of off to the side. Yeah. And which is such a great experience. I mean, yeah, I remember as like it, an assistant sitting in, this is more for editorial, like when I was right. an assistant editor and, you know, just seeing how the editor, you know, responds and deals with client requests. And then you're also faster because I feel like when you're in the room, you could get a sense of like what's needed. And so yeah. you could start prepping things for be it the editor or the flame artist. And then right. they're like, hey, we got to get it. And you're like, oh, it's already done. It's in this library or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, so we were on 2013. And the, the thing that like the biggest stumbling block for me was that 2013 at the time didn't have a timeline. So everything I would sit behind the, the leads, my counterparts, you know, whether it's Dave Waller, Peter Bullis you know, Jeff McAuliffe, all these amazing artists that were super competent on Flame, all the editing that was happening was heading, happening on the desktop, but like, you know, in a, in a reels view. So it was all like, I, yeah, it was really difficult for me to understand, like, where is this work happening? Like, yeah. I don't see it. <laughs> totally. Cause it's, it's just like, you know, to them, it's all muscle memory. Yep. And, and we had one seat at the time, I think it was on 2014, which was the anniversary edition, I believe. No, and I think you're right. Yeah. 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 2014, I think, I think it was 2014 was the anniversary edition. And that was kind of a disaster. Not, not, we, we never ran jobs through it. It was always just like, Hey, see what's like new with the new software. Okay. But then maybe a year no like 
I'd say like eight months into like my first year there, 2015 came out. Mm. And that had a timeline. Yeah. Oh, okay. So 2014. See, I think. Okay, so maybe that is the case. I thought 2014 had a timeline, but they had abandoned the desktop or something. And then... Yeah, you could be correct. I, I could be mistaken. But like, yeah, there was a lot of... So we also, we had a backdraft as well. And like, that was more like clip-based view. So you would like move the clips around. Okay. Sort of like, you know, there still is the clip view in Flame, mm -hmm. but like... Mm -hmm. But basically, like... But 2015 was the first version where you felt, oh, wait, okay, now we have a timeline, but we also have the tools of Flame merged. Right. So with 2015, there were a lot of growing pains with it in the sense that, like, the software was really buggy when it was released. That's what I heard. Yeah. It was really, really... We had a lot of problems with the different systems or whatever. But that aside, so, like, the headaches of the system were one thing, but the concepts... And from all my training on Avid DS or Media yeah. Composer, all of a sudden it was like, you know, because being on a flare, I was basically just comping and then, and like kind of staying away from the flame gestural editing and how they were putting spots together on the flame. And then with the timeline, basically like everything clicked like very, very fast. Okay. So within like a couple months, like, I had a lot of the leads coming to me asking like, Hey, how do I do this? Yeah. Because it was timeline based now and you can still do those functions, but they wanted to new learn the new tools. And, and I like, it just made sense to me. Like everything about it, it just clicked. And I was like, Oh yeah. Oh wait. Okay. So I can just take this clip from here in the timeline and just throw it into a batch and like, it was all gestural. So nothing was being hidden from me. I was seeing where things were going. Right. And how like I could see, like visually see in my mind how things were getting done versus I was kind of lost on 2013. Like I just was like, there was this, yeah, my brain like would get to a point and then it was just like, I don't understand what's happening on the back end. For sure. And now all of a sudden everything was visible. So so yeah, so then from that point on, basically like I like I really I quickly ramped up and because I had already spent a lot of time in the hot seat like at Fox and everything with with me and stuff like that, they pushed me more towards client sessions relatively fast. Okay. So yeah, so then I I was doing a lot of that and still was doing heavy 3D also at the time. Like it all kind of depend on jobs. Yeah, I, I wanted to get into that because out of all the flame artists I've I've met. You're kind of like a true jack of all trades. I mean, you know so many different softwares and you have that very strong 3D background. How has that helped you as a flame artist? Because I feel like it has. Like I remember times at Brickyard where other senior artists were like, oh, I just need this like, it was, I think it was for like a Jeep ad or some some car ad. And they're like, oh, we just need some more extra grass over here. And like you just pulled up Maya, like built some grass put it in the scene. And I was like, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it gave me one, I had this like really good sense of like 3d space. So basically in flame, you have, you know, there's 3d tracking tools in flame and then you have, you had action and then you had G masks, right? But yeah. G mask, even this was before G mask tracer, right? Right. The G mask had a camera. 
right? So what you could do is you could, for instance, do a 3D track or bring in a 3D track from another piece of software. And then you could take those parameters from the camera of that track, apply it to that camera, say in the G mask node. And then you would basically be like roto, like doing your roto in 3D space. Yeah. So if your camera's flying through a scene or whatever, and you need to track certain objects, well, as long as you have a locator in that position and the camera's moving, then you could parent your GMAS to that. And then like most of the work's done for you. So like there were a lot of things in Flame that at least along those lines that it really helped me understand that visual space, you know, like those different dimensions and then understand the tools or like what the, I would very, I was able to pick up techniques very fast that for a lot of other people, you know, that hadn't had that experience, it might take them a lot longer to understand concepts. And yeah, I mean, basically it was, it became like, I liked being able to wear all the different hats. So like being a flame artist, but then also being able to like do 3D stuff if I felt like it needed it and I could like not only do it myself, but dictate to the other 3D artists what I needed. So like that communication was very easy to have because I understood that, that language. And, uh, and then that also filtered into like during all that time too, and being at GBH and then Fox and even in college and everything, like, you know, I had done a, a lot of after effects work, like pretty heavy stuff in after effects. And so, yeah, like you said, like I have this skill set that's like, you know, not just flame based, but that really goes into all these different tools. And it's always helped me in the sense of like, even, even in my job now that I have a very quick mindset of like, okay, I'll try these couple things in flame, but if I don't get an acceptable result or something that I think is going to work, I can, I can call up like five different tools in my brain and just ditch and go to something else. So yeah. whether yeah, it's I, like- I remember at Brickyard, you had your Linux flame, you had a windows PC with after effects. Right. And I'm sure it had a, you know, Maya on it too. Yeah. I mean, I don't think at the time you had nuke, but I know, you know, a little bit of nuke, but yeah, I was right. always just blown away. Cause you'd be like, I'd come into your bay and you're like in after effects. I'm like, Mark, what are you doing? You're like, no, it's just to get this one task done. It'll be yeah. faster in after effects. And I could just yeah. kick it back to flame and right. then, yeah, it'll just make the job go faster and yeah. I'll get a better yeah. result. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that, that, it, that's played into like, you know, obviously, like you said, like after effects, but like there's certain functions I'll just export image sequences to for Photoshop and yeah. we'll do. Oh, that's right. I remember things. there was that yeah. ad that you were the VFX soup on and it was for a watch and you hit, kind of had some bigger tracker markers on it and you just brought it into Photoshop and did the uh, heel tool or like, so I can't remember what the tool is named yeah, well, and it was, you were well, like done was, in like four minutes. I was like, damn dude, that would take me a while. Yeah. That was a fidelity investments commercial that I was on set for as VFX soup and then was doing flame work on back at the studio. And basically like, it was an Apple, it was a close-up of an Apple iWatch. And mm-hmm. it was like, no matter how small you made the tracking markers or that I at, or that I had Asked, told yeah. them to add or dots, they weren't really markers, but you know, tracking markers yeah, being yeah. crosshairs, that like when the camera was on it, they looked huge, right? So right. it was like whatever lens they were using, it just enhanced it. Right. Yeah. And and 
to get the reflections back, you know, those had to get painted out and there was a lot of different lighting happening. So basically you could see, like if you're just doing patches in flame, even offset patches, you would always get to a point where it wouldn't, it would either be you're pulling over a dark into a light area or a light into a dark area. So you, yeah. it was never right. And it was just like, I was like, you know, I got to do four, I got to do four of these things. And I was probably like, I probably had to do like three different shots because of course, you know, there's different cut downs and they were using a different yeah, part take. of the page yeah, or whatever. It's never a true so cut. Yeah, so I just exported the sequences, brought it into Photoshop and it was just like, you know, lasso this one area, content aware, next frame, content aware bit, like just like rip through it. And it's like the thing with like content aware and doing it that way was like, I mean, basically it's like in painting now is like what silhouette has and i think even nuke has it now too but like basically it was oh, like and yes yeah nuke does have that yeah basically it was like the fastest way to do the cleanup for that shot that was eventually going to be a screen you know a, a phone comp or not a phone comp but a watch comp right a screen comp where it was going to be good enough for the reflections to come back over right and mm -hmm. like that was the goal was like it didn't have to be a hundred percent it had to be close, but it was like good enough that it was done. And this is just being a task that had to get done before the comp could continue on. And it was the fastest way to do it. Right. Like yeah. it just, it got the best result the fastest. And, yep. you know, now there's tools where you have like at the time, the Adobe content aware fill and after effects hadn't come out yet. So it was like there, it was like at that time, it was like this, I'm going to try this and see what happens. And it was just like, whoop, like oh, done, you know, wash, rinse, repeat kind of thing. And it, it became very easy. Best tool for the right job. The other thing I was kind of blown away by was how you approached Roto and you approached it in a 3D artist sense of draw a very basic mask. Basically, use an axis, say you're like rotoing an arm, and you basically attach it to the elbow, do do that, and then refine once that motion is locked in. I, I had never seen that approach before. I would always like draw the mask as tight as possible, and then you're moving all these points around, and it would always get unruly. And then you showed me that, and I was like, oh my, like this makes total sense. Yeah, and I mean. That was your 3D background, right? That kind of brought you to that? Yeah, because it was, it was, to me, it was like the way I looked at it, at least for say, like humans in that sense, it was like build it as I would build a bone skeleton in Maya where you would have joints for the different functions, right? And then those joints through IK kinematics move the other joints. Yeah. You know, and so like basically your shoulder moves your elbow, your elbow moves your wrist, your wrist moves your fingers. So if you, if you have to do all this roto, which is never really fun, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, you know. I, I mean, I've done so much roto in my life, but like sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's like your your mind can go numb. You just get in the zone and do it, yeah. and you move along. But like the man, yeah, like when you're up against the gun and you got to get a job out, right? Like, and you're kind of like, oh man, I got to do on top of all the other work I got to do. I got to do this. This roto's got to get done. Yeah, it's the well, it's like the it's like the thing with Roto is that yeah, I mean there's there's di obviously like you said there's different ways of doing it and some are gonna as, as long as you get to the place and it's good and it passes the buck you know gets the shot across the line then you're good but 
what makes Roto difficult, especially with like clothing and stuff like that, it's the in-between motions where all of a sudden those vertices start sliding along the surface. Mm-hmm. So, oh yes, of course. That's that's where you see it, right? Like that's yeah. where you're. Well, that's where the majority of Roto fails in that situation. Yes. The way that I was doing it, being like drawing a super simple spline with very little vertices. And then doing the majority of the animation on the axis, the parent of it, the thing then I could do is for every keyframe I had on the axis of the G mask, I could then select my vertices and then I could basically go to every keyframe that I had made from the, from the axis and make a duplicate keyframe on the, the vertices keyframes. Mm-hmm. So the shape, the shape channel of the G mask. And what that would do is that would basically say, hey, guess what? Now all I have to do is for like, I would start on with one vertice and make sure that that vertice, I'd rip through the keyframes and make sure that vertice doesn't move, even though it's moving in space on like the same point on like every time. And then I would go to the next one and do that again. And then... Once those were done, I could then add points in and like most of the work was like done. Oh, yeah. I remember you showed me this. It was a golfer taking a swing, right? And then you showed me it was like five minutes you had like rotoed his whole arm. And I was like, holy shit, man. Like this just blows my (laughs) mind. Like, no, it was like crazy because like I feel like that would have taken me 30 minutes, maybe an hour, you know, just using normal techniques. Right. And the thing, the thing is that, and I, I think I had posted at the time, maybe it was on Facebook or something. The thing I could never figure out. So like my like methodology of doing the keyframes on the axis first, but then before I started making changes to the G mask, making set keyframes for that would match the same keyframes time-wise from that parent axis, I could never find a way to automate that. That was the hardest thing. Like one time I had to do, we were doing a pitch for a BMW ad and like what I had to roto was like 1800 frames. Oh geez. Like the axis held up great, but to go to make the duplicate frames on the G mask vertice, like set key, Mm -hmm. I had to like step through like 500 times versus like if there was a way to like say like, Hey, for this parent access, mirror the like just make duplicate keyframes, but just on a different channel. And uh, I never was able to find a way to do that. I, okay. I, I still to this day do not have a, and it was like maybe it was like I couldn't really write down exactly what I'm talking about now. Like there wasn't a way. Yeah, it's like you, you like, couldn't write something down and then send it to the developers and be like, hey, can no, we I have do to, like, I would have to show, like, it's like showing someone's one thing, but then, like, talking about it is another. But definitely writing it down to, like, the, like the internet was, like, a whole other level removed where, like, people didn't understand, like, what I was after. And basically, mm-hmm. it was just to make a baseline set of keyframes that aren't really doing anything. It just allows me to all click to the next frame to then make my my changes. So it wasn't I had to like hit, keep hitting set key because what I'd have to do is I'd have to click the access, yeah. click the G mask, hit set key, click the access, click the G mask, hit the I move remember, forward. Yes, I remember that. That's, yeah. I wonder if there's some expression. Yeah, I, yeah, like I don't so know I, any I, of that, so right, I'm not sure. Like, 
If anyone out there knows, or if anyone's listening to this knows, I'm all ears. I'd love <laughs> yeah, to know. Because, to like, yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, like, it's it's a game changer when it comes to doing roto work in Flame, and even now with the GMAS tracer tools. And that brings me to, I guess, what I have posted or you know have sent in as developer feedback. I think someone else also did too. Is I love the edit box and the GMAS tracer, but I want there to be the ability to adjust the transparency of the edit box. Oh, dude, I remember you're posting on Logic Forum. Yeah, yeah because basically, yeah. like, it's like, and you know, an extended by Cubic, all these different tools, you can adjust your transparency of them, but you can't do that on the edit box. True. And a lot of times, it's dude, really bright. It's really bright. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, because it's always you know, it's that sometimes bright it's, green that it defaults to. Yeah, and it's sometimes it's if you're on like low contrast footage, even to the point where even if you up contrast in the viewer, like you you lose, you don't see the image anymore. And like I said in the very beginning of this, like I don't like things stepping over the image, and the edit box is like the most blaring thing right now. That like is just there. Yeah, and it doesn't need to be so in your face. You know, it's like I mean, that's that's a good point. And I'm not a developer, so I don't know how hard yeah. that is. But I feel like if they could do it for your actual G mask. They could do it for the edit right. box. I mean, like it just, it's just like it's this has to be something. I mean, for so many icons in Flame, on-screen icons that you can address transparency of, or like visibility mm-hmm. of, you should be able to do that. Yeah, with that tool. No, that's that's a really yeah. good point, man. Really good point. So, so since you started on Nuke, how was? And I know you started on Flame in pre-anniversary. How was that transition for you, like using Batch and whatnot? Because you know Nuke, like channels, you could have multiple channels flowing through your whole script. Right. Whereas Flame, it's pretty much only one channel being piped through. Like, what was that transition like? I had only done a couple classes while I was doing my master's degree in Nuke, and so I wouldn't say I was ever like super, super proficient in it. Flame being such a gestural piece of software, which still to this day is like the, what I love best about it is the way you physically interact with the piece of software. It's like, it's like someone playing the piano, but you don't, you have all these other controls that you don't need. So you're not really like using a computer. It's like, you really are working with something in between like yourself and the computer. And, and I, I think, I, I think it goes back to the original developers. Like they were artists themselves. Yeah. They, they built it as an artist, not as a programmer. When I had started at Brickyard, you know, they had a huge library of tutorials, all the FX PhD stuff for like, oh, yeah. for like, you know, so I would work, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 hours a day. And then I would go home and I would watch like, three hours of tutorials Amazing. every night for like six months. Dude, that's awesome. So like I was way more invested because I was like finally like working. I was way more invested in learning than like, you know, it's like if you're just going to like, you have a job to do and you might have a little bit of downtime or whatever in between jobs. And you're like, oh, I'm going to try and like dabble in this other piece of software. It's very easy to get distracted and not really stay focused because you're like, Oh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go do this, or I'm gonna go do that, or like, and you just kind of like, or you watch like ten minutes of tutorials, like twenty minutes, and then you're like, ah, I'm gonna go and do something else. 
Well, this was like, I couldn't do that. I had to like prove myself. I was the low man on the totem pole at Brickyard. I had to, knowing that like I might have client sessions, like there's all these tools that I don't know that I might have to like call upon. So I had to like really, really dive in like super deep, super fast. Yeah. And once I got proficient in flame, it was actually, and still to this day, every time I do go to Nuke, it's, I find it very clunky, you know, and I'm sure like mm -hmm. seasons, which there are tons of them, Nuke artists out there would be like, oh yeah, no, no, no. You just got to do this and you just got to do that. But like just the way flame is like, I, so like, that transition became very like almost invisible because like once I was on flame, it was just like, there is no other thing to use. Uh, okay. Even okay. though like, yes, there are, you know, tool wise, like multi-channel EXRs, right? Like nuke handles that way better than flame does. But like, can I get a, like, can I nine times out of 10 for like the kind of work I do, I can get the job done staying inside of flame. Yeah. 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 And not having to go to nuke. And I, I might go to nuke for very specific tools such as like what we were talking about before with like Photoshop or After Effects. Oh, or, true, true. Yeah, because I know like else. on a couple jobs recently, you used Copycat for a few Copycat, things. Copycat, yeah. right. And then like the match grade function, if you have to match, say like what a colorist did, but they couldn't go back to the color house, that's super mm -hmm. good in, 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 Nuke in Nuke to use to get like a really fast baseline color grade. That's a much faster way to do it than say like, Try to, it's, you can match it in flame, but it's just, it, it's not going to, you're not going to get that baseline that fast. Right. So it's like, yeah, as you know, like we work, it's like, everything's due yesterday. Right. And it's just like stuff comes in and you're like, well, I got to, they want me to match this, but they, they don't have time with the colorist. What can you do? And you know, you might get close, but they're going to be like, eh, it's not exact. And you're going to be like, ah, you didn't go back to the colorist, but like you, here's yeah. a, Here's more of like a magic bullet I can use that like takes that hesitancy out of the, you know, the client's yeah, like mind yeah. that like, the, you know, okay, we're cool. We're like, we're good to go. Let's go on to the next thing. Like that, that's, that's done. Right? Yeah. No, no, dude, that's so, yeah. awesome. Like, and speaking of which, how was the transition? Cause I know prior to, you know, Brickyard VFX and jumping on a flame with agency, you know, sitting in your bay, you had people in your bay in like an avid DS suite or whatever, right. or like producers. But what was there a big transition for you working with agencies compared to say, you know, promos for news or? Yes, it was that there were a lot more people in the room and mm -hmm. then a lot more, a lot, lot more pressure, like, especially like a GBH really, like there wasn't like, and any like, you know, and I would work with external vendors, meaning other in-house, which was really funny the way they dealt with money in the sense that like everything had to be billable, but it was money that wasn't real. It was funny money. It's like monopoly oh, money. Weird. Like, okay. Like, 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 like they were paying themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But like, okay. so you would have another, for instance, I would do work for say like American Experience, Frontline, Nova, Masterpiece, Theater these huge brands inside of GBH, but those were looked at as almost external clients from us, oh, even though oh, they're internal, okay. but the money's all coming from the same place, yet they still had to add a value to your services. Yes. But there wasn't the pressure there like there is on the agency side, like the ad agency, true ad agency side, where it's, 
big money, big pressure, and there's a lot of people involved and everything needs to get done immediately because you're the last in line and they saved no time for you. And, you know, like they, they gave you no time, yet they gave the editor three weeks and yes. they gave, you know, all this other stuff plenty of time. Yeah. Oh, and they're and still they, paying the editor to make revisions as you're working. Exactly. And, yeah. Right. Because you're going to be getting a new edit, right? <laughs> right. Every day. Yep. Yep. That like, yeah. There, so there's just this heightened sense of like emergency and fear that the clients, like most clients, not all of them. But most tend to bring to the the table, Sweet. yes. And so it was learning to sort of knowing myself, and I can be kind of also high strung to like have to through like once I got really competent on the flame was to like just bring everybody down a bit, like and just be like, you know, talk to them about their weekends, talk to them about even though I know they want to jump in, like almost. Yeah purposely try to slow it down because that's where there would be so many internal conversations happening in the same edit suite that like you had to kind of almost keep your ear attuned to each and every one of those conversations, even though you're focused on what you have to do. Have to do yeah. and, and that like, you know, as you know, like that helps to build a, you know, a relationship with clients. Like, you know, you really start to like learn about them and, if they come around enough, like you learn about their families and if you, and you learn about what makes them tick and, and what kind of people they are and like what their coffees are and like just stuff yeah. that like, no, at the end sure, of the day, yeah. like I wish I didn't have to do that, but it's part of the game. And if that gets it across the line, like going to after effects for a certain task, then that's part of a life skill that will make yeah. a job go smoother too. And you know, that's the song and dance as what, as, as what people, you know, define it by. But like, it is part of the part of it because you're only getting information from certain sources. And most of the time you're cut out from the original source. This is an opportunity for you to like get that information that maybe you've probably been asking for the whole time and you just haven't been able to get to it. So it's like, and that information might be very valuable to getting the job across the line and it just hasn't been brought up, right? So, yep. so yeah, there's definitely in advertising, especially obviously like commercial work, most of my bread and butter is, you know, there's just a lot of that song and dance. But when you learn to talk to people like a really great waiter or waitress learns to talk to people or, you know, as a life skill and you care about them and you care about the product and the project that comes through from everything else that you do, mm -hmm. you know, that I feel like will go the farthest because that will live on longer than what the commercial will. Cause that stuff will, you'll deliver it. And then a week later it's, you're either making revisions or they're on to the next thing and it's, it's short lived. So no, for sure. And dude, I remember you were always so good with clients in the room and so I'm curious, how has the change been over the last two years with COVID and whatnot, not having as many in-client sessions? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, and certainly with being remote, and I've only actually had, I've only had one in-person client session during COVID. And actually what was, what was nice about it is that it got me out like back into the world, right? And yeah. even though everyone was vaccinated, because there was no one else around, it kind of, 
I felt like also brought the pressure down in the room. Like there wasn't all the studio was very quiet, right? Like yeah. we had the whole suite. Um, and you know, and they were a- probably excited to be there too, because yeah, so they might just not like, have been in a flame suite for two years as well. Yeah, right. And yeah. so it was just like, I had gotten the rough cut and the material earlier than I normally would have if it was pre-COVID. And so I had more time with it. So I was already able to like get like, from their notes, like 80% of what they wanted done with, or at least a version of it, 90% done. So that when they came in, we basically were just like finessing or making, having logical conversations about why there would be a certain effect here or not a certain effect there. And, and then giving them options for what those things could look like. So, so like the, really the whole day, the, the two days that I was in, the edit suite, it was actually super relaxed and it was everyone. We, we had a great time. There were, there were only four of us total, two people on the agency side and then a producer and myself. And it was, it felt great to like be back. And, but yeah, I mean, moving forward to where we are now. And I think, you know, on the bigger jobs, on the larger agencies, they all have now these internal rules. And I think the paradigm shift has happened, right? Like there were two paradigm shifts during my career so far on flame that have happened one was the tsunami in japan okay, which dude yeah that wiped out tape tape yeah i tape gone. i just talked to my buddy dan bowers about this and it yeah. was i i'll never forget that because i was you know in la but it was at tape everything hdsr digi beta yep. whatever yeah and then the tsunami hit and it was like there was no more supply no t- and everybody right. everything went to postings after that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Tape gone. So that was a huge change because the amount of time, you know, we would get in spots or dailies on HD cam SR. Oh and my then God. You're, I can't even imagine getting dailies on it. Yeah, oh, like actually, I do remember, but it was painful. <laughs> right. So you're like, you're digitizing, you know, you're working the decks, you're pulling the footage in, yep. you're hoping everything's there. There's that. There's no hiccups on the tape. There's no, you know, dropouts. I mean, I can't even like also remember how many nights you run a tape to digitize overnight, and you're just praying it just it goes okay. And when you show up the next morning, screw up like one frame (laughs) on the timeline, right? Like, like if God forbid, and then like you know, then you're dealing with the couriers. The couriers would come by. You'd be you'd be like calling people back, like oh no no. It's not right, you know, like, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. So much stress. So that was number one. And then two being COVID and COVID being something that I don't think anyone expected saw happening, right? Like totally. The postings thing, like that was super weird because the Sony plants that were making all the, the tape like got wiped out. And then because everyone just got used to postings, yeah. Then that wiped that out, right? And the decks themselves were super expensive. The tape was really expensive. The amount of like just basicing the tapes, like all the time that you needed, the the people you needed, the staff for the you know machine room and everything like that, and and whatnot. And so that all went out the window. And then yeah, with COVID, it just I think it reprioritized everyone's brains, like my brain, yours, I'm sure, across, everyone across the board. Where it was like, hey, you know what, like. I know we could go into this edit suite and see everything happen and get wined and dined and get our coffees and all that stuff. But 
you know, my wife would really like me to pick up the kids from home, you know, after work. And if I can just, maybe if we can just do like a quick like client session or something like that through Zoom or, you know, yeah. one of the various chats, just so I know everything's going well, that's great. And if not, I'll just have to look at postings and that's fine. And it just, that's where I feel like even now it's like different organizations with different, you know, protocols, even though we're kind of like in this weird post COVID world, even though it's still around, it's like that. Yeah, yeah right, right. Those things aren't, aren't going to go back, right? Like those, like the time that people get back in their lives became all of a sudden way more valuable than it was before COVID. Mm-hmm. So before it was like everything you did was like about work. And now it's like, hey, you know what? Like if I can like be done with work a little bit early today and I can go out for a run or something that I would normally want to do but never could do because of work, I'm going to I'm gonna try and do that. And I think that's not just like me saying that, but it's like the agency side, the production company side, like everyone's like, sure, everyone needs to work and get the work done and like they want to do a great job, but it's like, life is very important and you no matter what at the end of the day you only have one life and you there's only a finite amount of time to that so yeah i think it's no i, yeah, to- that's I totally the- agree I, I think the shift yeah. has happened and don't get me wrong like if if the agency feels like the job will go better with in-person sessions like i'm totally game for it. I, I just recently finished a a nike spot where i had two weeks in the office and i, I actually felt when we were all in the same room things happened faster than yeah, me definitely. posting and, and all of that. But I do think the majority of the time we could all be doing our own, th- you know, I don't know, like we don't have to be in an office. And I remember years prior to COVID agencies coming to hang out at the, the VFX house just to be outside of their, their office. Yeah. And they didn't even I, have an active job at right. our shop, but they were just like, Hey, yeah. can we just borrow your lobby just to get out of our <laughs> Yeah, totally. That would happen all the time. And then what would happen during that time is they would be like, hey, you know, you're working on another job or whatever. And then they'd be like, I swear, they would be like, hey, can you just look at this for me? And then like, you're like, they're like working on their stuff. And you're like, wait a minute. Like, right, right. What am I, I, got, I got other work to do. Right. Yep. But yeah, you're right. There are definite times I, I had just the other week also where had I been able to get some people in the office. We could have gone through things in a more logical manner. And I think decisions would have been made sooner and or been called out sooner that would have, I think, expedited or would have caused a couple days of stress to not have happened, right? So yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's some things that can, you know, that just you don't get through postings. One of the one of the things that like, I learned going to art school is like, Somebody, you know, language means a lot, right? So, and it's, well, language is everything. And the fact is that somebody, if someone says, hey, Glenn, can you make this this shot or this spot? Can you make it a little less bold, right? Like that word bold, it's like, well, what does that mean? Bold can mean, are you talking about the typeface? Are you talking about a color? Yes. Are you talking about size, pacing? All those things that you might interpret as an artist being at home and you're, you know, working on a flame or working on whatever, you're going to interpret that a certain way, whereas somebody else might interpret it completely different. Different. Yeah. And 
when you are with that person and they say, hey, can you make this more bold or less bold? I guarantee you, you will know very fast what they mean, regardless of what you think it means. You know, I, I totally agree. And I think even if you have a question, you could immediately bring it up like, oh, so wait, are you talking about the type or the color? And then they'll answer it. And then the other good thing about that is you've now made the decision with each other. So yeah. if someone else at the agency goes, oh, what about this? They will fight for it more now because you made it as a collaboration. Right. And right. That, that's and so what I, I kind of feel. Yeah. Right. And I, yeah. I, I think about that like very a lot, especially with versioning, where you're dealing with resizing of graphics and or placement of graphics and you're getting stuff in from you know, editorial and they may or may not have done a placeholder and the stuff that they have may or may not be right. Most of the time it's wrong. And then what you get mm -hmm. is different, but they tell you to match the rough cut and it doesn't line up. So now all of a sudden you have all these questions because they'll say match the rough, but you can't. Ugh. And then it starts to add to this question like, okay, why are they moving this logo over three pixels on one spot from yes. the other spot? It's like, is that intentional? Why are you doing that? Because in my mind, I'm like, it should work as a system, like a graphical system, and it should be in the same place oh my God. most of the time. And that's a lot of stuff that like comes from traditional training from being at art school, right? Like I, and something that you could learn on the job, but like, I really learned that critical eye, like early on about those types of systems and especially being doing on-air graphics at GBH and even at Fox, like there would be certain places for your bugs. Like where's the bug come up on screen through the Chiron and master control? Like. Is that going to go up over my graphics on my mm, spot? Because uh, if it point. is, you have to think about it. Because if it is, then it's like, why are you putting your graphics in that same spot if the if the bug might come up over it, right? Yeah. All these layers of things that happened early on from college, then to freelancing, then to internships, then into graduate school, and all this stuff. Like you, I look back at it as a stack in the DS or a bunch of nodes in Flame, or a bunch of layers in After Effects as just experience that I can always look back on that inform my decisions and or questions that come, yeah. that happens every day, you know? And it, it's all, dude, I run into the same issues. Or even edit-wise, you'll get a, you know, three three different sizes, a 16 by nine, one by one, nine by 16, the 16 by nine and the nine by 16 match edit wise. But the one by one, there's like two shots that are the, the edit points has changed. And you're like, wait, right. what? So you bring it right. up and they go, oh, okay, that was a mistake. But you know, things like that, where like even the editor might slip something by mistake yeah, and it shouldn't have been slipped. And right. so don't match the offline. You want to make everything consistent. Yeah. So you yeah. have to like, so it's like every time I start a job and every time, you know, I always go to the roughs and then start making my edit points in and start looking at everything. And like you said, just that's a perfect example. Like, you know, everyone can make mistakes. And so you can't always trust what's coming in. You can't always trust just match because there's always questions that have to get answered. And so being like on the box, and being like the last person to touch the stuff before it goes out to yeah. broadcast or to the web or to all the different places, you're the last one to ask these questions, right? 
Oh, for sure. And somebody somebody has to answer them or someone has to give you an, an answer because I'm working on some spots right now for Toyota and the stuff came in with certain names. So I'm, you know, truncating names a little bit but to make sure everything watches. But they had put in the name of a, a newspaper, a prominent newspaper in the title. And I'm like, oh, there must have been a reason for that. And then when I posted my conforms, like, oh, you got to take that name out. That was an error on the assistant editor part. So it's like, uh, it's like, yes, you know, I'm like, even then I'm like, oh, so like, you can't even trust like that. Right. Like, yep. and, it's but so yeah, true. I mean, so it's just like, you assume, you can't assume always match what's coming in because again, there's all these questions that come up all the time. Like just even with like resolution of files or, you know, different things like i always think of like continuity too like time passing right like if i was working on a set of spots and they were putting up a timestamp as a super for some reason to kind of establish timing of day but in yeah. like a lot of the shots and this wasn't even called upon as a ask a vfx ask there was a you know a clock in the background mm -hmm. a circular clock and i'm like so I went in without asking the agency and comped the clock oh. to match the time. <laughs> Dude, that's amazing. Because, yeah, because I mean, basically, like those little things are what start to tell a story and make something work. And, you know, if you miss those things, which easily they can get missed, like it just it detracts from, you know, the production value of something. So yeah, that kind of stuff is like important, like those, those minutia details, you know, even if they're not asked upon or those things go a long way because sometimes you have to do what's right for the job and sometimes you have to do what the bid is. But something like that was a blaring thing that I knew like it was like it wasn't going to it's like for most of the shots, they were the same angle. So I could just kind of rip setups. But like totally. obviously in certain situations, depending upon camera moves or, or whatever availability is or what is happening you know, then you have to kind of go back and say, hey, look, like this is a thing, like this is going to cost X amount of dollars. But the devil's in the details and, and those kind of things can go a long way and also keep clients coming back and being happy. So I know, I know for sure. Yeah. And uh, I know you've kind of worked on a wide range of things, you know, you, commercials is, you know, like you said, your bread and butter, but you've done some film and I think some episodic even like, do you have a preference of kind of workflow yeah, so or? I mean, basically now being at zero for, oh man, I'm going into my- Is it fourth year? year? Fourth or fifth year. I, Amazing. I started in 20, Dude, 2018, 2019. No, 2019, right? So yeah, so 2023. Yeah, so four years, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So crazy, time flies. Yeah, so like you said, majority of what I work on is commercial work for all the various different flavors and then some episodic and then also some feature film stuff, all of which I don't get credit for because it's, I don't really understand exactly how the credits work, but also I don't <laughs> oh, really man. care. Oh no. Okay. I, I, I don't really care in that sense, but like, yeah. So episodics and or features, they're, they're very similar. I feel like in terms of their, you know, the quality that has to go out and the uh, and pipeline or whatever you pipeline. Call it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah, totally. Right. So working at zero being a place that has a lot of feature film work and episodic as well as commercial. The commercial work stays inside the flame and occasionally we bump out shots to the pipeline for nuke or other various tasks. 
most of which stays in flame. And then there are times where if we're slow on commercials, we'll get asked to do work on features or help out stuff. And then the pipeline basically is there, but we have to bring stuff into flame and then we have to kick stuff back out to the pipeline. So like we kind of avoid the pipeline, but we still have to work in certain parameters. At the end of the day, I like working on commercials the best. And that's because I like the challenges and the speed at which something comes in and is delivered, right? So, yeah, you know, feature films, which would be worked on for the longest, then episodics, and then commercials being the quickest. You might be working on a shot for months, and I I don't know if I have the patience for that. Like, I just feel like that I would have to almost like retool my brain to to kind of fit in that world and not if I'm on a shot for like two days, I'm going crazy. I'm like, yeah, wait, and, why is this taking so long? <laughs> right. And like I also like in the terms of commercial work, like there's a lot of reasons what you know, I like to be able to work with the creatives at an agency or internally or whatever why a certain solution is best mm-hmm. versus like on episodics. And even more so on features, it's like, we have to do this because this is what the director wants. Uh, Okay. So it has to be exactly that. And you are removed from that conversation because that's going between like the VFX soups, the director and yourself. And and possibly even a producer in between. Right. So I think things get, stuff gets missed and... You know, I like to be able to have access to those conversations and I, I lose out on that. So, you know, in terms of like, like you said, like Roto or maybe some straight paint work, maybe some keying where it's like very straightforward work. That's one thing. But I like to be able to like get more in the minutia of things like ask the whys, like, why are we doing this? I mean, clearly, obviously, there's like, oh, we have to clean up tracking markers on a green screen and then pull a key. Yeah. That's like a process. That's it's like peeling paint. Thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that. that's just a task. Yeah. Whereas like asking questions, working with a creative about like, why are we, you know, why do you want to do this type of thing here? Or a lot of times it's like you get asked to do something that's like, can we just like make it magical? And you're like, well, what do you, one, do, what do you mean? And two, like, what does that mean to you? And why, why, what is it about that that you want? Right. Versus like, you can have that question, but like, you're not going to have that question if you're just doing a task on a feature or whatever. Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I've worked on plenty of stuff, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, working on commercials is most satisfying to me just because I like the challenges that I get to work on the variety of work over the course of a year. And then also if there is something that's like really becoming an issue, I know it's not going to hang around too long. So it's just like, that's that's why I love commercials too. You, yeah. You generally have a set out date, you know, an air date that they need, yeah, they need exactly. to make. And you're like, okay, we'll crank until that point. And then once it's done, you're either you get right. a little bit of a break or you're on to the, the next thing and you don't have to think about it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. And so I think it just is like a better, and I, I get to wear more of those hats, right? I get to, if I need to like jump into Maya for something because I don't have 3D support from the 3D team. I can do that. Yeah. If I need to export a shot out to Silhouette to do a certain paint test that I know is going to be faster in Silhouette, I can just do that because I don't have Roto support 
from the roto team. If I can do it all in flame, most of the time I, you know, that's what I'm always going to try and do. Then I can just do that. And I don't need all, I don't need all these other teams to, yeah. 99% of the time. I can just rely on myself or exactly. anyone else on a flame because we don't have these constraints of the pipeline. It's like, right. Oh, I have to export this shot. Then it has to get like created into all these different flavors, just and then into shotgun and then into like, yeah, the, you know, the scheduling. And it's just like an artist might not even see it for like half a day. Right. And you're like, you've done it <laughs> in half so a day, true. you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh so, my God. Uh, well, this brings up a really good, you know, last question. Do you think the role of the flame artist has changed recently compared to pre COVID or whatever? I look at any flame artist as not just an artist on a box. I feel like they're artists that are also, you know, creatives that are VFX soups in their own right, you know, whether they've been on set or not, that are almost a one-man band production house because post-production house because of the training you've probably gotten up to that point to be a lead or to run jobs, to be in that chair, to run that box with all these other people looking down on you, knowing this stuff has to get done, and then leveraging all the past experiences, whether it's 3D, having to talk to people in a 3D department or different departments, right? So you're, you're also like a VFX soup on it. And it's like, that's the role of the flame artist. You're not just someone banging on a keyboard you're yes. you're 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 holding the producer's hands you i'm constantly getting called into bidding questions or pre-production questions or getting on calls with creatives ahead of time i love that honestly the sooner i can talk to a creative on a job or about an idea or about something i can like really start to invest myself and my talents into that job right mm -hmm. so that I feel like is the role of the flame artist. We're not just people like sitting in a in a dark room or in a closet or whether it's at our houses or in in the you know in studio. We're we're much more dynamic artists in that sense, and I I just feel like that's just given the nature of the type of work we do. Mainly being you know I would say majority of flame artists you know, are probably doing commercials. Although there are other places that do mostly flame for episodics and other stuff like that. But yeah, I feel like there's a larger depth of knowledge that kind of comes along with it. Yeah. Oh, dude, you know? for sure. For right, sure. right. Awesome, man. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Dude, it was so great catching up. Dude, I know the community is gonna love this. So thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. All right, talk soon, man. This episode of the Logic Podcast is brought to you by AJA, together with Flame since 2006. We would like to welcome to the Logic family our friends at Hotspring. Hotspring is the future of VFX outsourcing. Hotspring connects you to great artists to get your projects done, making it easier than ever to access the best talent around the world. I highly encourage, if you need any help with roto, paint, cleanup, or 3D match move, Give the folks at Hot Spring a shout. You will not be disappointed. www.thehotspring.com See you next time.